Hello and welcome to Resources Radio, a weekly podcast from Resources for the Future. I'm your host, Daniel Ramey. This week, we talk with Wei Peng, Assistant Professor of International Affairs and Civil and Environmental Engineering at Penn State University. Professor Peng is the first author on a recent paper published in Nature that makes recommendations on how integrated assessment models, or IAMs, can be more useful in climate policy. She and her co-authors describe how these models can better represent the real world, especially political dynamics, to better inform policymakers at the local, national, and international scale. Stay with us. Okay, Wei Peng from Penn State University. Thank you so much for joining us today on Resources Radio. Thank you for having me. So Wei, we're going to talk about a a recent paper that you published with a group of co-authors about integrated assessment models. Uh, But before we do that, uh, we always ask our guests how they got interested in working on environmental issues in the first place. So how did you come into this field? Yeah, so I grew up in China and I went to college in Beijing. As you could imagine, the air pollution is really a big problem there. But I have to say that the bad air itself didn't really motivate me to do research on environment. I kind of like got used to it and, and felt that I this is something I have to bear with given that I live in Beijing. But the real game changer to me was that in 2008, I was a sophomore and Beijing hosted the Summer Olympic Games. And it was such an important event that the government tried everything they could to clean up the air just for that two weeks of time. And they actually succeeded. We had blue skies during that two weeks of time and it was like magic. And they achieved that goal by, for example, told the industrial plants to shut down during that time and also asked people not to drive on those two weeks. So I basically learned two things from that. Uh, One is that the political will is really powerful. I was wrong to think that I have to bear with the bad air because if we really want to tackle it, we can clean up the air and we can do it fairly quickly. But I also learned the second thing, which is policies are all about trade-offs. Because after the Olympic Games, things went back to normal. Those activities went back to normal. As a result, the air pollution went back to normal as well. So we could shut down those economic activities for two weeks, but we probably could not afford doing that for a very long period of time. And it was that thinking that motivated me to pursue my PhD degree in energy and environmental policy after I graduated from college in 2011. And I have been thinking about this question, uh, how can we have like better policies or smart policies so that we can gradually navigate people's behavior and also investment decisions into something that is more sustainable, which is cleaner and also economic viable. And I have been working on this topic uh, for a very long time. It's hard to imagine that it has been 10 years for me since I started uh, working on this topic. That's great. And that's such a it's such a great example of trade-offs that you say, you know, you can shut down the factories for two weeks, but you probably can't shut them down for two years. And so trying to find that right balance is so important and interesting. So um, 
So wait, let's talk now about uh, this really fascinating paper that you were the first author on. Uh, we'll have a link to it in the show notes. The paper is called Climate Policy Models Need to Get Real About People. Here's how. Um, so great uh, grabbing title, and we're going to dig into it. And, um, you know, a- as I mentioned earlier, we're really going to focus on this class of models called Integrated Assessment Models, or IAMs. So we'll be referring to IAMs in today's conversation. Um most people uh, listening to our show uh, have probably heard of IAMs, but probably not everybody knows uh, the details. So can you start us off by describing what IAMs are and how they are used in this context? Yeah, absolutely. So in order to understand the climate problems, people have built a suite of tools to model how human activities interact with and also have an impact on the natural system. Um, we call it integrated assessment models because it models a very long chain of effects. For example, how socioeconomic drivers such as income and population growth are going to affect economic activities and how much mitigation efforts are going to occur as a result, what will be the implications on the climate system. So um, sometimes we also consider the feedback. For example, if we have more warming in the future, this is going to be hotter. So people are going to turn on their air conditioners more often. So this has implications on the energy demand. So in short, it is integrated in the sense that we couple different systems from human to technology and also to the climate system. Another aspect it is integrated is also that we need to combine knowledge from different fields. So we need insights from economics to understand how people respond to such as price signals and other incentives. We also need insights from physical sciences such as like how much CO2 is emitted from power plants and how that CO2 emission are going to affect uh, our future warming, that kind of thing. But I do want to emphasize one point that is probably less thought about, especially for those people not working specifically in the modeling field. There are actually two types of integrated assessment models, or IAMs. Both of them are very useful for climate policy making, but they actually target different uh, policy base and policy questions. The first type is cost-benefit IAMs, which are simpler to a large extent in terms of the model structure. And the second type is what we call detailed process IMs, which are more complex. So let me explain it a little bit. When we talk about cost-benefit IMs, the simpler ones, they usually compare the cost and benefit of avoiding certain level of warming in the future. And they try to answer questions such as, what will be the social cost of carbon? If we emit one unit of carbon today, what will be the cumulative, both present and future, cost to the society to a large extent? And one quick example of the cost-benefit IAM model is the DICE model. Um, The full name, I think, is the Dynamic Integrated Climate Economy Model, developed by uh, Bill Nordhaus, who won the Nobel Prize of Economics uh, in 2018, I believe. So these models are simpler in a sense that they try to use simplified equations to characterize how society works. And you can actually use an Excel to get the solutions out of the model, such as what will be the social cost of carbon, what will be the optimal mitigation pathway if you have certain preferences. So that's the first type. 
But when we wrote that piece on nature, what we had in mind in terms of the target model is more about the second type, which is the detailed process IAMs. And they are detailed processes because they try to provide a detailed representations of sectors and also technologies. So for example, what kind of power plants we're going to build, what kind of cars people are going to drive, what kind of buildings we're going to live in, what kind of food we're going to consume, and uh, what kind of agricultural activities we're going to have in order to meet that food demand. So the real point here is that we want to represent the sectors and technologies in a very detailed way. And we also want to model the interactions between the human system and the natural system. And one quick example is um, there can be river flows, and this is going to affect the availability of cooling water of power plants. And that's something we can model in this type of IAMs. So the detailed process IAMs are um, set to answer big what-if questions. So for example, if the globe want to achieve climate stabilization by the end of the century, what kind of technology mitigation pathways can actually help us get there? Like what should China do? What should India do? What should United States do? It can also ask some of the what if questions, for example, if we impose a carbon tax, what does it mean for our technology system? Are we going to shut down coal power plants? Are we going to add renewables? And then what are the implications on carbon emissions? So these type of models are much more complex. We can't use Excel to get a solution. We need programming language. We need computing resources. And it takes minutes to hours to get a solution. So um, I want to emphasize this difference here to make it clear from the very beginning that it is this detailed process IMs that we had in mind when we were describing like climate policy need to get real about people. Great. That's so helpful. And um, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think the models that we're really going to be talking about today are the ones that are used, for example, to inform the IPCC process. So like the models that, that are run to achieve like a 1.5 degree stabilization target in the 2018 special report. Is that right? Exactly. Thank you, Daniel. This is a very useful context. So IPCC has been using these detailed uh, process IEMs to develop mitigation pathways to achieve certain um, stabilization target. It has been used in the previous uh, assessment report, and it was used in that 1.5 degree special report. It is going to be uh, used in the uh, forthcoming uh, assessment report um, number six as well, AR6. Great. Um, so let's get in now to kind of the core of the, the arguments um, that you and your colleagues make in the paper. Um, what are some of the key shortcomings that you identify with existing IAMs? Yeah, so as I mentioned before, uh, we tried so hard to build these IMs to represent the physical world in a very detailed manner. But we're still missing a very important driver of the climate policy in the real world, which is the politics. And I have to say, sometimes I just wish I could live in the model world <laughs> because <laughs> I can impose a carbon tax. That's just a line of code. And investment choices are going to respond very quickly. Um, for example, if I have a carbon tax in my model, uh, we're going to see less coal and more renewables. That feels so simple. But the real world is much more complex than that. Um, just some quick examples like carbon tax is difficult to get in the real world. Um, for example, a lot of times, uh, Politicians and policymakers actually prefer regulatory approaches, such as renewable portfolio standard or low carbon fuel standards, because those regulatory approaches, um, it's less directly for the public to observe, 
the policy cost. As a result, it's actually politically easier to be chosen and implemented in the real world. And on top of that, there's so much inertia in our social and technological system. Like getting away from coal, even if we have a price on carbon, is difficult. Think about the potential like job losses and also equity implications. So in short,、um, we definitely see this. Disconnect between the modeled world and、uh, the real world, and we think we should try to make the model more useful and more politically relevant. And a key shortcoming or the key challenge we hope to address is to add those political and human factors. That's great, and、um, as you know well, it's one thing to kind of note that、uh, in the abstract, and it's another thing to actually code it, right, to get it into the models and make it work. So, what are some of the concrete steps that、uh, you and your co-authors have in mind to actually making、uh, these updates to IAMs? Yeah, so I think the first thing、uh, as a modeler we should be thinking about is what to prioritize, because model developments is a never-ending process. You know, a lot of these big models we're talking about today, they have been developed for many decades, and that's how we get this like complexity in the models today. So, the key question is. We know for a fact that we want to add more human and political factors into the model, but we also know that it takes a lot of time, human resources, and money to make model development. So, what are the areas we should prioritize? So, the concrete suggestions we made in this piece is that we should think strategically on two dimensions. The first dimension is that. Is this model development going to really help the decision makers, or in other words, is this model development going to be useful for decisions to make concrete and improve decisions in the real world? And here, another important point to note is that there are different decision makers who can benefit from using the result from IAMs. There are, for example, national decision makers and subnational decision makers, and for them, they probably care about the distributional consequences on different segments of population within their country or constituencies. And for them, those are the type of model improvement that will help them make better decisions. In comparison, there are like other people, for example, those negotiators who are going to、um, come to the COP conference later this year and discuss about like as for the international community, what kind of the next stage of climate deal we're going to have so that we can solve this problem. For them, they may care about how international trade or the investment policies are going to affect the future landscape of climate change. So the key point here is that we need to recognize、um, there are different decision makers and they have different needs, and we want to know what are the useful model improvement to them, and that should be the starting point. The second dimension,、um, as a modeler, is that we should also be thinking about how practical is it to make such model improvements. Do we have the data to support it? Can we add algorithms that are compatible with existing model structure? And are we going to make sure that we can find a solution? We're not making the model too complex. But I have to say that the second. Dimension about how practical or how easy it is to make that improvement in model. This is something modelers are very good at. We have been thinking about questions like this from the very beginning when we build the model, and in the past decades when we improve the model. So I really think it's the first dimension that is kind of like 
understudied or uh, less thought about. And once we figure out the first dimension, it is a very practical question in front of the modelers. How should we make it happen in the modeling world? Yeah, that's great. And there's a um, really interesting graph in the paper, too, that people can check out where you sort of plot um, these two dimensions against each other, right? The usefulness of the uh, update to the model and how easy or difficult would it be to practically implement it in the model. And there are some examples uh, of, of each type in there, uh, which I'd encourage uh, listeners to go check out. So as you've already noted, you know, there are different levels of difficulty to uh, to implementing these changes. Can you talk a little bit more about some of the key challenges to, again, making these improvements to the models in the real world? Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, first of all, if, if our goal is to make the models more political relevant, we actually need to keep reminding ourselves that we should start with the question, but not the tool. This message may sound very straightforward, but I have to say, if you are a modeler who have spent decades so so much invested in type of model, it's actually easy to think about what can be done using the model, but not taking a step back, thinking about the bigger question about what other things that would really be important. So that's why I want to re-emphasize this point again. Uh, I think the first key challenge is that recognizing different needs of different decision makers and also recognizing that our models are not going to solve all the problems. So there's no like one size fit all type of model. So we want to spend our money, our time on the questions that are actually important to the real world decision makers, but not just another paper that can be published in an academic journal. So in order to really make this happen, uh, I think it's important to engage with the potential model users or the stakeholders from the very beginning. We should ask them what are the questions they really care about and then make model development accordingly. But we should not just like spend five years making the model improvement, produce the next generation of modeling results, and then tell policymakers that, hey, this is what we have, take them uh, and try to make use of it. So I think that's the first like key challenge I want to uh, mention here, really engage the model users from the very beginning. And the second challenge, I think, is that uh, models have strengths and weaknesses. So when we talk about integrated assessment model, we are actually not talking about one specific model. There are actually quite many of them that exist, and they build on different model structures, model logic, and they have different um, priorities, and there are certain parts that are stronger than the others. So um, I think there's a saying that when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. So I do think that as a modeler, we probably want to think about this question that I have a very good tool in front of me, but what kind of political processes or what kind of like human factors are compatible with the type of model I'm working on right now? Uh, am I stretching my model too much, making it too complex, answering a question that actually this model is not designed for? Um, a specific example on this can be a lot of models are built on this logic of optimization. So we have a certain goal, for example, achieve two degree. And we want to find the most cost-effective way of achieving that goal. And that's clearly a framework of optimization. But at the same time, a lot of political and human processes are really dynamic. So things like policy diffusion, where things like technology adoption, there are a lot of like nonlinear and very dynamic uh, processes involved there. Um, and for things like adoption of new technologies, you know, people sometimes are reluctant to adopt new technologies, even though there's so much evidence that they're superior. 
So um, there are like other models people have been designing to capture better those dynamic processes. One example is agent-based modeling. So I think the point I'm trying to make here is that there are different model structures, model logic. Some of them are more compatible with certain type of political processes and factors. Some of them are less compatible. So I think as a modeler, we need to recognize the strengths and weaknesses of our modeling approach and try to make good use of the model to answer important questions, but don't stretch it too much when other models perhaps are better candidates. Right. And the next question I wanted to ask really, you know, follows along uh, that logic quite nicely. And, uh, you know, it's about the role of complexity and, and the role of modeling complexity or, or the right approach to, to model complexity. So, um, you know, one of the challenges of any large scale modeling effort, whether it's IAMs or, or some other kind of model, is trying to, you know, represent the real world in all its complexity, uh, but also not making it so complex that nobody can understand what on earth is happening in the model. Um, and that's certainly a challenge uh, with some of these really big IAMs that they, you know, had the potential to be quite quite opaque. Um, so how do you think about those trade-offs of trying to represent the real world in all its complexity, but also making the model usable and understandable and, uh, and transparent? Yeah, I think this is a great question. And I have been thinking about this a lot um, in the past few years. So I think, first of all, complex doesn't necessarily mean better. So making the model more complex is the means, but it's not our goals. So I, I think that's going back to what I said earlier, um, the goal here is really to make them more politically relevant. And that should be the guiding principle about whether or not we want to make the model more complex. So I, I, the first thing I have been thinking about along this line is that if this is a useful thing to have uh, to inform real world decisions, it is worth doing, even if it means that we're going to make the model computationally more complex. One example is, again, the distributional consequences. Uh, a lot of models right now only, for example, have one aggregate income group. But if you double the income group, you more than double the computational need. And that is because there are so many like interactions with different systems. So it's not like a simple doubling of the computational needs when you double the income group. Think about you have like 32 world regions and you have five income groups. It's actually very easy for the computational needs to explode. So, um, but I felt that given the critical importance of understanding the distributional consequences, we should still do it because it is important. I, I think this is an example where we know for a fact it's going to make the model more complex, but I still see a strong justification. Why should we invest time and energy into this question? And I think the other point I want to make about this like complexity versus usefulness discussion is that it is true that um, when we make the model more complex to the outsiders, it sometimes makes it more opaque and more difficult to understand. But I also think that there is a flip side, which is the process of making the model more complex by adding more factors and dynamics. It can also help us as scientists to understand what actually matters. It's because as a modeler, we can actually test out what assumptions and what additions can actually make a huge impact in changing the results. So we can break this like huge, complex and opaque question into manageable small pieces so that we can unpack the dynamics even more. So 
uh, on the one hand, I, I, I agree that making it opaque is definitely not what we want to do. But at the same time, I also think that there are so many ways we as modeler can do to make it less opaque. It's just we haven't spent enough time um, publishing papers along those lines or communicating with uh, other audience about those underlying dynamics and what matters and what does not. Hmm, that's really interesting. Um you know, you've already mentioned uh, at least one example of a type of model that can incorporate um, some of these dynamics. You mentioned agent-based modeling earlier. Um, are there other uh, examples that you can point to, maybe specific models or specific policies? You also mentioned, you know, distributional consequences. Uh, are there examples that you can point to where you think these complex, you know, human and political systems are getting incorporated into IAMs in ways that you find exciting and innovative. Yeah, so um, I can share an example that uh, for about a project that we have been working on. So the, the type of integrated assessment model that I am most familiar with is the type of model called GGAM, Global Change Assessment Model. This model is developed by the Joint Global Change Research Institute, which is a partnership between the Pacific Northwest National Lab and the University of Maryland. So this is a global model, but it has a version that has subnational detail for the United States. So we have been using the model GCAM USA to think about this question of what does it mean when climate action goes local? This is a trend we have been observing in the past five years also, especially in the United States, that now states, cities, and business leaders are actually taking the lead in tackling climate change. But what does it mean for the mitigation cost? When we think about climate leaders like California, New York, these places, they are climate leaders not because it's cheaper to mitigate in these places. It is because they have strong local political support. So it's actually politically easier to mitigate more in those places. But the downside of thinking about the state-driven climate action is that a lot of people are worried that it's going to be too expensive. Because California and New York, these places have already mitigated so much, they don't have those low-hanging fruits to mitigate uh, in a cheap way. So are we going to significantly increase our mitigation cost of achieving, for example, net zero target as a country, as a whole. So what we did using GCAM USA is that we partnered with the public opinion researchers at Yale, the Yale Program on Climate Change Communication. They did a series of really fascinating um, surveys to sample how people think about um, climate policies. What is the level of support um, for things like um, climate policy in general, or more specifically, uh, like taxing carbon, et cetera, et cetera. And those public opinion surveys reflect the political reality of public support for climate action. So we use that information from their survey and build state-driven climate mitigation scenarios to reflect those realities. And what we find is that it is going to be only marginally more expensive if we let the climate leaders lead and let the followers follow. And this is the main driver uh, of this not too expensive um, economic cost is because states are actually connected through the energy markets. So there is electricity trade and there can be trade of bioliquids as well. And that provides an opportunity to arbitrage. So even though climate leaders are doing uh, have a relatively high implicit carbon tax, because of this trade, uh, we actually don't see a significantly more 
uh, like higher cost of achieving the same goal at the national level. So that is just like one example that we have been using the GCAM USA model, try to capture some of the political realities on the ground. I also want to quickly mention that the GCAM team at PNNL, they have gradually adding different income groups to different sectors in their model. It is work in progress, but I think that definitely points to a very important direction of better modeling distributional consequences and the equity outcomes. Yeah, that's so interesting. And I, I've definitely seen a similar dynamic uh, here at RFF where some of my colleagues who have built uh, you know, complex models, they're not IAMs, but they're complex in other ways. Uh, they're increasingly trying to incorporate some of those distributional issues uh, as well as the political dynamics that we're talking about today. So Wei Peng from uh, Penn State University, this is such interesting work, and we could talk about it for many more hours. Uh, I'm sure you'll be thinking about it for many more hours uh, in the weeks and months ahead. But um, we're going to go now to our last question, which is called Top of the Stack. So asking you to recommend something that's at the top of your literal or metaphorical reading stack. And um, I'll start with a, a little bit of log rolling, actually. I, I can't resist because we were talking about IAMs and IPCC models. Um, I, I want to point people to this year's edition of RFF's Global Energy Outlook, which is a uh, report that we put together each year uh, that basically compares long-term energy outlooks from a variety of organizations, uh, including some that are built with the very models that we're talking about today. So um, it's up at rff.org slash GEO. Uh, we compare on an apples-to-apples -apples basis lots of different long-term energy outlooks, and there's an interactive data tool where people can play around with the results of the IAMs that we're talking about today, as well as other models from energy organizations like the International Energy Agency and BP and Shell and companies. Uh, companies uh, like that. So uh, hopefully a cool tool for all of you out there who are interested in energy models. Um, but how about you, Wei? What's on the top of your stack? Yeah, so uh, before I get to what is on my stack, but I just want to say that tool is really cool. I spent some time on it. I'm actually thinking about using it for my teaching in the fall. I teach a course on energy environmental nexus, and I think those that tool you were mentioning just now would be super helpful for my students to get a sense of the energy landscape. So thank oh, you for doing cool. that. <laughs> oh, great. Well, I'm glad it's useful. Yeah, we, uh, we, we want it to be used. So uh, yeah, it'd be great if your students could uh, spend some time on it. Yeah. Um, okay, so um, I think the, the, the most recent book I've read on the climate topics is a book uh, called Making Climate Policy Work by Danny Collinwind and David Victor. And David Victor is actually also one of the author of this work. So I don't want to be a spoiler, but I think this is going to be a very interesting book to those of us who have been thinking about climate policy but haven't really thought about the empirical evidence on what actually worked in the past and what didn't really work that well, and also why. So they did a really cool analysis looking at the market-based programs to tackle climate change and mitigate emissions, and they identified some of them, or many of them, that are actually not very effective. Um, and I think, you know, uh, I encourage you to read the book, but as you could imagine, the punchline is really about politics. So I would encourage uh, those interested in our paper to read this book because this is really provides additional evidence and really good stories about why politics should be at the center when we think about climate policy. 
Yeah, that's a great recommendation. And I've been meaning to read that book. I've also heard great things about it. So um, so thank you so much for that. Um, so once again, Wei Peng uh, from Penn State, uh, expert on energy models uh, and how to make them work in the real world, make them useful. Uh, thank you so much for your work on this, for coming on the show and talking to us. Uh, we've really learned a lot and I think our listeners have too. Thank you, Daniel. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. You've been listening to Resources Radio. Learn how to support resources for the future at rff.org support. If you have a minute, we'd really appreciate you leaving us a rating or a comment on your podcast platform of choice. Also, feel free to send us your suggestions for future episodes. Resources Radio is a podcast from Resources for the Future. RFF is an independent, nonprofit research institution in Washington, D.C. Our mission is to improve environmental, energy, and natural resource decisions through impartial economic research and policy engagement. The views expressed on this podcast are solely those of the podcast guests and may differ from those of RFF experts, its officers, or its directors. RFF does not take positions on specific legislative proposals. Resources Radio is produced by Elizabeth Wasson with music by me, Daniel Ramey. Join us next week for another episode.